One day, when I was about four, I was taking a nap on a lazy summer afternoon. Suddenly, I was awakened by being snatched up and carried outside. Now, this was very unusual because I am the youngest of four and was always encouraged to nap as long as possible. <laughs> and my mother would have harsh words for anyone who woke me a minute early. But this morning, it, it was my mother who was snatching me up and rushed me out the front door. The sun was so bright that initially I was blinded. And then I was being pushed through a crowd of older children and plunked down on the grass. In front of me was a two-foot-long garter snake with its jaws distended by the back half of the frog that it was desperately trying to swallow. And the horrible wonderment of that moment was so intense that I still vividly remember it 50 years later. I know some would be critical, perhaps, of my mother for rudely exposing such a small child to such a shocking vision. But I love that in that instant, she recognized this as a special chance to see something rare and incredible play out on our ordinary suburban lawn. And she was right. I have never again had the chance to see a snake in person eat a frog. <laughs> I'd say what I felt that day was awe. Awe isn't an emotion that we talk about very often, I think in part because it's hard to define. But I think we've all experienced it now and then. It has been described as what we feel when we encounter things that are just too big to fully comprehend. It can contain elements of joy and aesthetic appreciation, but also sometimes fear and a sense of being overwhelmed. People experiencing awe describe their, hand, their hair standing on end or breaking out into goosebumps, chills, and sometimes tears. They may yell out with a big, whoa. And fun fact, that noise, that long O sound or a long ah sound is um, recognized in all languages as the sound of awe. After experiencing awe, individuals often, often describe feeling a sense of oneness with others and an inner peace as their personal problems shrink in contrast to the vast mysteries of life. Studies have also found that people in a post-awe state tend to exhibit greater humbleness, empathy, and generosity to others. The book of Revelation is one of the stranger books in the Bible. That, that may be an understatement. Um, I didn't even select the weirdest part. And <laughs> we are asked to imagine an angel so huge that one foot rests on the land and the other in the sea. 
and both legs are aflame. So I'm picturing like steam on one side and then like a little brush fire on the other. And this amazing being is harnessing all of the power of the sky. It has uh, rainbows crowning its head, a face glowing like the sun, and it's wrapped itself in clouds. Roaring like a lion and accompanied by seven thunderclaps, this horrifying apparition commands our narrator to eat a scroll. Sometimes it's described as a book in some translations, which is sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. One approach to this kind of passage is to try and figure out what its strange images mean, either in relation to previous prophecies or historical events. So some say that the seven thunderclaps refer to the seven cities of Asia that the book of Revelation focuses on. Others describe the sweetness in the mouth as being the knowledge that uh, the Christian people will um, survive and triumph, but the bitterness is the realization that much suffering will occur before that time. I could go on, there are tons of interpretations of this passage, um, but I tend to agree with those who say that it's, we're, it's not really the right approach, perhaps. I don't think the author of the book of Revelation was creating the equivalent of a biblical escape room or a celestial crossword puzzle that we were meant to figure out. This would be a little like taking a song that you really love and insisting that figuring out the meaning of each word and the name of each chord will explain why it moves you. Instead, I think Revelation's extreme imagery is meant as an invitation to enter a state of awe, to grasp at what is not really within the realm of our understanding and catch a glimpse of something much greater. Likewise, with Nietzsche's parable of the shepherd and the serpent, what do we make of the disturbing image of a man who wakes with a snake stuck in his throat so hard that to save himself, he has to bite the head off it and then burst into uncontrollable laughter. Again, I don't think that the point of this is to claim that it really happened or that it somehow maps directly onto something in the so-called real world. But when I first read that Nietzsche passage in college, the horror and paradox of that imagery tore me out of my everyday life and forced me to recognize it as both true and beyond my rational comprehension. Dr. Keltner, a psychology professor at Berkeley, did a study in which he asked people from 26 countries to describe times when they experienced awe. Despite differences in language and culture, their responses suggest that people throughout the world typically feel this emotion in the same eight circumstances. One is during epiphanies, experienced while reading paradoxical or evocative passages, like what I've been talking about so far. 
The second is experiences of conversion or being in the presence of God, when people often describe being overwhelmed with light and wonder, collapsing to their knees and crying out with joy. The third is not directly tied to religion, but can be. It involves witnessing acts of incredible personal sacrifice or generosity, what Keltner calls instances of moral beauty. For me, an example of this uh, is Sister McKinnon Brown. She's a middle-class white woman um, who gave away all of her possessions to live and provide assistance to very low-income people in Milwaukee. When I lived there in my 20s, I went out drinking with Sister Brown a few times. And like with Revelation and Nietzsche, her extreme approach to her faith amazed me and also scared me. Um, I, I greatly admired her, but also worried for her safety and frankly, her sanity. The next three of Keltner's eight sources of universal awe are incorporated into most worship services. These include music and visual beauty in the form of our architecture and our beautiful banners. The sixth is something referred to as collective effervescence. Um, when people move and act as one, so like when we stand in unison for him and sing or when we process down for um, communion. People have a natural urge to move together. Think about when, you know, um, clapping synchronizes when you're at a play or um, people jump in unison to the beat of a drum or um, when the wave moves around a sports stadium. I have to admit, Uptight Protestants like me get a little uncomfortable with too much of this in worship service. Um, but for many religions, moving together is central to the experience of God from you know, gentle swaying with arms outstretched to feverish twirling, clapping, and stomping. Finally, the Bible and many other religious texts, as well as ceremonies, often reference, commemorate, and incorporate imagery of the last two awe-inspiring circumstances described in Keltner's research. The beauty and power of nature, and relatedly, nature's major transitions of birth and death. In the Bible, God repeatedly appears in moments when nature is at its most powerful, at the tops of mountains, when the sea is roiled by storm, and when, uh, pestilence and famine arrive in the land. Jesus, too, is in some way a powerful metaphor for the traditions in every good life. Being born and cherished as the most special baby ever. Growing up to surround oneself with good friends and do important work. And ultimately suffering and dying, as we all must, but still living on in the memories of those who are left behind. Our religious ceremonies track the seasons of the year, recognizing the potential for new life in the dead of winter and heralding the rebirth with Easter in the spring. We come to church to baptize newborns, consecrate marriages, and mourn deaths. So that's all eight of 
Keltner's universal sources of awe closely intertwined with religion and its observance. And for me, this was truly a revelation. I am not comfortable with the idea of a personal God, one that puts his or her thumb on the scales and punishes some and rewards others. Like most people, I think, I puzzle over the logistics of that, but also bridle at the clear injustice of it. God cares for every hair on every person's head, but allows Susan's friend's 10-year-old to die of cancer, or my stepdad to lose everything as his mind and body grow weaker. More recently, I've tried to conceptualize what I believe in as humanity collectively striving towards some goal with God as that, you know, conceptualization of the goal. Sort of like when liberal pastors in the 70s said God is a verb. But that strictly rational approach leaves out awe that powerful and swelling euphoria that I can occasionally tap into through being exposed to nature, music, art, moral beauty, birth, death. The absolute awareness that there is something that extends beyond all that we see and think we understand. So perhaps in some important way, religion and religious practice is designed to get us to that place where we lose ourselves in something more. Like my mother and that snake, it encourages us to wake up and see the world in all its wonder and horror, pushing us beyond rationality to the ego-busting generosity of, whoa. <laughs> Amen.